do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, do you remember the dreams that you had for your life? I, I like to ask my eight-year-old what he wants to do when he gets older because I love the responses and how they change depending on what he's watched or what he's read. One day it's an astronaut. When he was younger, he wanted to work with animals. Some days it's a chef. Other days he says he wants to do what I do. We make all these plans. Even as we grow older, as we become wiser, we continue to make plans. When I was a senior in high school living in Ohio, I knew exactly what my life was going to look like. I knew who I was going to marry. I knew what our kids were going to be named. I knew what kind of job I was going to have. I knew where I was going to live. You know how many of those plans came true? None of them. None of them. I ended up getting married to someone I hadn't even met in the first 20 years of my life, this amazing woman. And the names that I had picked out for my kids, this isn't even a lie. The kids that I had picked out, if they were girls, were going to be Kendall and Kylie. And I don't know if you knew this, but those are the names of Kim Kardashian's little sisters. I did not know that. I thought I created these names. Needless to say, my kids have different names. The job that I thought I was going to have, I promise you this was not even on the list of possibilities. And where I ended up living, like most of my family in Ohio, I would have told you that Rhode Island was a city in New York. I could have never imagined living here. You see, as human beings, we're plan makers. But God, God is a plan breaker. You've heard the saying that man makes plans and God does what? He, he laughs. God's plan is almost never our plan. And you know what? I'm so glad. We've been reading about Paul's life and ministry in the book of Acts in this Through the Valley series, and undoubtedly, Paul, when he was a kid, would have had some plans for his life when Paul was still Saul of Tarsus, sitting around as a child daydreaming. He likely would have dreamt something like, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to be an influential rabbi in Jerusalem. And I'm going to study the Bible, and I'm going to learn everything there is to know about the Bible. And if I study hard enough, I might even be able to be a part of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. How amazing would that be? And you know what? A lot of Paul's dreams probably came true. Paul studied under one of the most influential rabbis in Jerusalem. He advanced far beyond any of his peers, and there's reason to believe that he eventually became part of the Sanhedrin. All of Paul's plans were coming to life, and then God changed Paul's plans. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus, ready to persecute and imprison Christians, Paul's on the road to Damascus, and God blinds him with a light from heaven. And then God sends a man named Ananias to Paul, and God tells Ananias, he says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's God's new plan for Paul's life. In these past couple months, we've been reading as Paul has been doing exactly what God said he would do. Paul's been preaching to non-Jewish people and Jewish people. He's suffered immensely for the sake of the gospel. And in this passage we're about to read, Paul is going to preach to a king. It all comes true. But these were not Paul's plans growing up. Paul didn't say, hey, when I grow up, I'm going to convert to this most radical faith and I'm going to commit to this radical rabbi named Jesus. And when I grow up, because of this Jesus, I'm going to be threatened and beaten up and ridiculed and imprisoned and eventually killed. 
No, these weren't Paul's plans. Paul had plans, just like we have plans, but God changed his plans. Paul was set on a new path. Historians estimate, historians estimate that of all Paul's missionary journeys, he probably traveled somewhere around 14,000 miles. You don't really catch that as you're reading it on paper. Somewhere just under 14,000 miles, this is not a walk from Warwick to North Kingstown. These are massive distances. And Paul has been all over spreading the message of Jesus and experiencing hardship, and now he finds himself in prison, once again left to rot. And that's where we pick up. After two years of waiting in prison, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, you can open those at Acts chapter 25. If not, we'll have the words on the screen. Um, And if you don't have a Bible but want to read it on paper, we have these Acts journals in the seat in front of you. You can have that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25, and we are going to be covering a lot of Scripture this morning. And so we're going to get some Bible reading in today, and it is all good stuff. So please focus in on these words because they're more important than anything I'm going to say this morning. So starting in Acts chapter 25, says this, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, and so remember last week Jamie talked about there was a governor named Felix. Well, now Festus has come and taken Felix's place. And three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. If you remember, this has been their plan for two years. Get him on the road, we're going to ambush him, we're going to kill him. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, um, and after he stayed among them not, eight, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many, serious, many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul says, If I've broken any laws deserving death, you can kill me. You can kill me. I'm not trying to fight that. But he says, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So what we need to understand here in this conversation between Festus and Paul is that this conversation is what will ultimately land Paul in Rome. Paul's going to end up in Rome. Last week, Jamie spoke about the governor Felix, and Felix was this corrupt, evil ruler, and he couldn't really find anything to do with Paul, and so he basically decided to just let him rot in prison. Paul's been in prison for two years, and after two years of being in prison, there's a change of power, and this new governor, Festus, takes over. 
Now, Festus is very different from Felix. Festus is very by the book. He's known for adhering to the law and remaining strictly loyal to Rome and his decision-making. And the Jews, they come to him and they ask the same thing they ask to Festus. Hey, send him our way. Send him on the road and, and we'll ambush him there and we'll kill him. That's our plan. We need to be done with this person. And so Festus offers this as an option to Paul. You want to go to Jerusalem and be tried there? And Paul knowing what the Jews have planned for him, says, nah, you know what, I'm good, actually. I think I'm going to pull my Roman citizen card, and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Well, this is a big deal. Paul appeals to the highest authority in the Roman Empire. And when he does this, Festus basically washes his hands of it. Great. You want to see Caesar, Paul? You're going to go see Caesar. The stage that Paul is standing and speaking and preaching on continues to get bigger and bigger, and it's about to get as big as you can go. Paul is going to be standing before Caesar Nero, the most powerful person in the empire. But before he can get there, they need to transport him, and before they transport him, they throw him back in prison to await being moved to Rome. And so while Paul's back in prison, this king rolls into town. This is where we pick up. It says, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. So this king Herod Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive in Caesarea and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered to them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. He's saying, I thought there was going to be serious. It wasn't anything like I thought. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And I want you to observe this word pomp. This word pomp, in the Greek it's the word fantasia or what we would call fantasia. And it means to like dress up or make something fantastical, make it like bigger than it actually is, to make a big deal out of something and this pomp, this fantasia, this was a calling card of this King Agrippa. He would come dressed and adorned in all these big purple robes and the crown and jewels and like way over the top, way bigger. Like he was a king, but like he wasn't this important, but he came dressed way bigger than he actually was. Like if Michael Jackson was the king of pomp, or pop, then King Agrippa is the king of pomp. So you have this king with more power than he deserves, dressed in all this fantastical clothing, and then... They bring in Paul, dirty and in chains, 
Who knows what he's wearing rags? Who knows what he smells like? Who knows what he looks like? It's a contrast between these two people. The passage goes on. It says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. How interesting. Don't miss this. Festus basically admits we've been holding this guy prisoner for two years based on nothing but accusations. We don't have any evidence. We don't have any proof. We have no real basis. He probably should have been set free a long time ago, but we're not going to do that now. That, that ship has sailed. So we're sending him to Caesar. We should probably figure out why we're sending him to Caesar because we don't want to waste Caesar's time and we don't want to look foolish. We have to figure out something to write about him. And so it says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. Picture this. Tattered, filthy, broken old man, this prisoner, a nobody, by their standards, in this room full of all these powerful, over-the-top people looking down on him. It had to look ridiculous. No doubt, just the visual contrast alone between how dirty and broken and messed up Paul is and all of these perfectly put-together people had to draw chuckles from the crowd. But nonetheless, Paul begins to speak and he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul's going to speak. Now, guess what Paul is going to do? You think Paul's going to defend himself? You think Paul is going to try to save himself? You think Paul's going to try to find a way to escape the struggle, escape the position that he's in? No. Paul is actually about to take this trial and he's going to let God turn it into a testimony. That's what we're called to do as believers when we walk through trials. We're called to take our trial and hand it to God and let him turn that trial into a testimony that glorifies him. You see, there's this quality in Paul that becomes the mark of his entire life. And this quality is that Paul desires to glorify God over everything else. Glorifying God is the most important thing in the world to him. You know, as believers, as Jesus followers, we are actually supposed to be striving to desire and desiring to glorify God. But Paul is crazy because he actually strives to do it. So many of us don't. You see, we talked about the way that Paul's plans got blown up a long time ago. But one thing that you see in so many Christians that you don't see in Paul is resentment when God changes the plan. You know, when God changes our plan, we get angry. You get upset. God, how could you? 
I don't understand what you're doing. I don't like this, God. I don't want this. You don't see any of that in Paul. You don't see Paul saying, God, listen, I know you have this grand plan that stretches beyond eternity and is beyond my comprehension where you're going to bring spiritually dead people to life and you're building a kingdom and you've invited me into all that and you want to redeem the world, but God, I, you know what, I, I actually, I just want to live over here. I, I don't, I just, I just want to do this job. I just want to stay comfortable. Like, I really wanted to like own these things and like, I, you don't see any of that in Paul. There's no pushback. There's no resentment. It's just submission. Whatever you want, God, I'm up for it. And it's mind-blowing. Because if you know Paul's story, if you've been with us reading through the book of Acts, you know that everything that he's gone through, at what point is Paul going to throw up his hands and say, God, what's going on? Like, what's happening here? How much more of this do I have to endure? Like, I'm out here doing your work. I'm out here preaching your word, and I just keep taking hit after hit after hit. If it's not ridicule, it's being beaten. If it's not being beaten, it's being threatened to be killed. If it's not being threatened, it's being imprisoned. And pretty soon in Paul's story, we're going to see shipwrecks, and he's going to be bitten by a snake. It's like, when do you tap out if you're Paul? When do you say, how much more, God? Like, but Paul doesn't break. Paul, we're going to kill you. To die is gain. Oh yeah, Paul? Well, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live, but you're going to live in poverty your whole life. To live is Christ. Oh yeah, Paul? Well, we're going to beat you and we're going to torture you? That's all right. I don't compare the present sufferings of this life to the future glory that I'm going to experience with God. All right, Paul, that's enough. We're going to lock you in prison to rot away for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's fine too. I'll just sing hymns and I'll preach until I convert every single one of your guards. But God will be glorified. He's untouchable. And it's insane. And it's beautiful and it's inspiring. And it's, if we're being honest, it's intimidating. And it leaves you questioning, how in the world can Paul live like this? I'm never going to be as righteous as Paul. And that's the point. Paul's not righteous. Paul openly admits, I'm not righteous. I'm chief among all sinners. The things that I want to do, I, I don't do them. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing them. Like, I'm not righteous. Paul is not righteous, but Paul has met Jesus. Paul is not righteous, but Paul has met Jesus. Paul has this abrupt, life-altering encounter with Jesus, and Jesus says, you're corrupt, Paul. You're evil, but I'm going to put my righteousness inside of you. You're a coward, Paul. You're weak, but I'm going to put my strength inside of you. You're ignorant, Paul. You think you know all these things? You don't know anything, Paul. You're ignorant, but... I'm going to put my wisdom inside of you. Hey, Paul. Paul, you're dead. You're dead. Paul, you're hopeless. But even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to put my life inside of you. And this just levels Paul. And Paul says, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow you anywhere. I will spend the rest of my life making much of your name, Lord. 
I want to be the kind of person that the devil is afraid to roll the dice on. You know what I mean when I say that? I want to be the kind of person that the devil is terrified that something bad is going to happen to me because the devil knows that every time something bad happens to me, God is going to be glorified somehow. Now, I'm not saying that I am that, but I want to be that. I want the enemy to fear when I go through trials because I want him to know that for me, every trial turns into a testimony and every obstacle turns into an opportunity to glorify God and every storm becomes a God story. I want to be the kind of person whose life doesn't revolve all around me. I want to be the kind of person that's comfortable with letting God set the agenda. God, whatever you're up for, I'm in for it because I know that even when everything is seemingly falling apart around me and even when nothing makes sense to me and even when it looks like I'm losing badly, that I know God is good and I know that God is at work and that's enough for me. And I've seen God turn some capital T trials into some unbelievable testimonies. I watch God take a cancer diagnosis and use it to turn my mom into a spiritual powerhouse. After being given a 12% chance to live, this woman grew so close to God that it made me question if I even knew him at all because he was her entire life. And then I watched over the course of years as she worshipped through chemo sessions while I screamed at God in empty parking lots demanding that he change her circumstances. And I watched over the course of years as she walked through the fire reaching out and picking up people along the way and sharing Jesus with them and praying for them and checking in on them and becoming a light in the darkest of places while I used all my prayers to ask God to take her light and bring it back somewhere safe. And then I watched in her last days in hospice as barely anything that she said made sense. But somehow, when she spoke about God, she didn't get a single thing wrong. I had faith before I watched my mom walk through her trial. But when God turned it into a testimony, man, I saw a side to all of this Jesus stuff that I had never experienced before. And I'm telling you, there's no turning back. And I wouldn't dare to pretend to understand the weight of the trials that you've experienced or you are experiencing right now in your, in your life. But here's the truth. You get a choice. You get a choice of who you hand your trial to. And you have two choices. It's either God or the enemy. You either hand your trial to God or the enemy takes it. There's no in between. And the enemy will use your trials to alienate you and isolate you and make you hate the world and everything in it and turn you into a resentful person with no gratitude and make you believe that God either doesn't care about you or doesn't see you or doesn't love you or doesn't exist in the first place. The enemy will use your trial to wreak havoc in your life and the life of those around you. The enemy can use a trial to destroy your life. I've seen it and I've come dangerously close to it myself. But God, but God who sees far beyond what we see, God who sees the bigger picture, God who knows you, the God who stitched you together in your mother's womb, who knows the number of hairs 
on your head, who loves you so much that he went to a cross to die for you, that God, he's the redeemer. And there's nothing that he can't redeem. Nothing. And you might see the good that comes from your trial. And that's awesome. But you may also never see the good that comes from your trial. But the thing is, you can rest either way. You can rest. Does that sound nice? I just rest. And understand that God doesn't waste a single tear of yours. He doesn't miss a single one. And everything committed to him will be used for the benefit of his kingdom and those who love him. And you can believe that. You can trust him. And so they give Paul this stage to defend himself. And he, um, well, he does something a little bit different. This is Paul's response to the king. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is, shown by all, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, saying I used to be one of them. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You say you believe in God. You say he's the creator of the universe, but then when I talk about him raising someone from the dead, you act like it's too much. It's incredible. It says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, at midday I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that's just Jesus' way of saying, I'm inevitable, Paul. I'm good. You keep fighting against me. Everything is pushing and pointing you towards me, and you keep fighting against it. You don't have to fight anymore, Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, 14,000 miles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul lays it all out there from beginning to end. He says, I grew up in this Jewish belief system. I was a Pharisee, and I was a good one. I was so good that I had substantial influence, and I used that influence to try to snuff out the spreading Christianity. I imprisoned Christians, and I killed Christians. But I thought Jesus was a threat to what we believed in. I thought he was a false god. And we'd been punished for following false gods before, and I didn't want to make that mistake again. And so I vowed to destroy this movement. But then this Jesus got a hold of me, and everything changed for me. He changed my plans. He changed my life. Just a quick side note. I want you to think right now in your head. If you have to close your eyes, you can. But I want you to think right now of someone in your life who you know for a fact that they will never come to know Jesus. That was Paul. That's the point of Paul's testimony. That there's no such thing as an impossible case because the grace of God is bigger. Bigger than what? Bigger than everything. God didn't choose Paul because he was a great speaker. God chose Paul because he was the most messed up person. He said, I'm going to send you. You're going to be my speaker because no one's going to be able to say they're more broken than you. If I can save you, I can save anyone. So when I ask you to think of someone who you know for a fact will never come to know Jesus, your mind better be blank. Because the God we serve is too big and too good for that. There's hope for everyone. Take it from Paul, a murderer of Christians, an enemy of Christ. There's no such thing as a lost cause. We've got to lose that from our vocabulary. The passage goes on and says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, old Festus, chimed in and said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Paul's saying, this isn't some secret thing. Like this isn't some small movement of a couple hundred people. This is thousands of people. This is spreading like a wildfire. Don't act like you don't know who we are. It says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Basically saying, Paul, you're preaching to me. That doesn't make sense a little bit. He doesn't seem as crazy as everyone's making him out to be. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains, saying, if it were up to me and my life, everyone would find what I found in Jesus what I want for the world. So then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. 
with that last line, understand that Paul is voluntarily going to Rome, voluntarily staying in chains for the sake of the gospel. Paul lays out the hope of his life. And the hope of his life is that all who hear the message of the gospel would come to know Jesus. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like our mission as a church. For everyone to experience God's unconditional love. Paul says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing all these crazy things. That's why I seem crazy. Because you have no idea how amazing God is. And you have no idea what he's done and wants to do for you. And you have no idea what's at stake. But I've seen behind the curtain there's something bigger going on here. And you have to see that. I'm trying to share that with you. Paul, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of being imprisoned, in the midst of the valley, remembers the bigger picture. And that is what we're called to do as believers. When everything falls apart around us, when the world goes crazy, we stay focused on the bigger picture. And I want to talk about this bigger picture. Because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's elections and and wars and pandemics and division and suffering. And the list goes on. There's trials. And as believers, if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in the trials that we forget that there's a bigger picture. And as believers, the bigger picture is what we've built our entire life on. And This is the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that we, as humans, were bent towards sin and selfishness and anger and lust and jealousy and laziness and apathy and pride. And God, on the other hand, is holy and loving and beautiful and pure and powerful. And what we bring to the table and what God brings to the table are just not compatible. They just don't work together. We don't deserve to be in God's presence. And yet, God, although he doesn't need us, he desires to have us with him. But our brokenness makes that impossible. And so God had to deal with our brokenness because we couldn't deal with it on our own. And so he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life, a life that's worthy of a relationship with God. And then Jesus goes unjustly to die and suffer on a cross to erase our debt in God's eyes so that this brokenness, this barrier that exists between us and God doesn't exist anymore. And there's nothing you can do to earn that. There's nothing you can do to deserve that. Jesus died on a cross to offer that willingly to each of us. And until we believe that and accept that, we're walking around this life dead. Dead. Not bad. Dead. Slaves to our sin. Spiritually stillborn. Lifeless. Empty vessels. But when you say yes to Jesus brings you to life and you step out of your grave and you step out of the dark and into the light and that's why we sing all these songs about it because we're celebrating that I used to be dead I used to be hopeless I used to be gone and Jesus pulled me out of the grave and he filled me with his love and his mercy and his life and his righteousness and I don't deserve it but he's given it to me anyway and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me and when you say yes to him that life stays inside you forever So even though you may pass away in this life, that life stays inside you forever and you dwell 
in God's presence for eternity. Or, or you don't. For those who don't accept this and don't believe this, they stay dead. And when they pass away, that death follows them into eternity. And it's either one or the other. But it is a big deal. It is everything. It's certainly bigger than anything that's going on in the world. And Jesus died on a cross to give us a choice. You can come to me. You can rest. You can find life. I died for you. I love you. And I don't think we think about the weight of it enough. But I think that Paul shows us that this bigger picture, this bigger picture should outweigh everything else in our lives. It doesn't mean that everything else in our lives doesn't exist, but it means that everything in our lives falls under this umbrella of the gospel and what Christ has done for it, for us. And if our lives aren't built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, then maybe it's time that we let God change our plans. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of Paul and Paul's testimony. Because I know at any given moment in my life, I feel unworthy, I feel broken, and I feel like my faith is weak. I feel like I can never live up to the call that you've placed on my life. I feel like I'm not good enough. And you send a servant like Paul who's broken and more messed up than I am, and you do something amazing with his life, and it gives me hope, God, that you pursue me. The farthest places that I'll run, the darkest corners that I run to you, pursue me, you love me, and you bring me back. God, I pray that that message resonates in our heart right now. I pray your Holy Spirit is in this room. And for anyone who hasn't said yes to Jesus, anyone who hasn't had that life-altering encounter with him, God, I pray that they make that decision for you. And I pray right now that if they don't, that Jesus sticks in their mind as they walk out of this place. I pray that they lose sleep over it. I pray they are distracted by it until they come to know you and your amazing love. God, I know that there are are those of us in this room who are experiencing trials right now of varying degrees, some extremely serious, far too heavy for us to bear, but God, I know that you work all things for good. I pray you give us hope, you give us trust that you are in all situations. And if we commit our trials to you, that you turn them into testimonies and you use them for far more than we could ever imagine. God, may your presence rest on this community as we walk out of this place, not get distracted by the first thing that happens, but spend time today resting in your amazing love. And I pray that that love and amazement drives us to a place where we love those around us and share this amazing news. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.